This week on Wealth Track, economist, Fed expert, and Professor Paul McCauley describes his love affair with today's policy of helicopter money. Capitalism is very good, but it can't solve all things that we want and need as a society. So therefore, we need to have our government elected through the democratic process to do things for the good of the people that markets cannot, through the incentive system, do. Financial thought leader Paul McCauley will be our guest this week on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, ClearBridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. When a fringe economic theory goes mainstream and is actually implemented by policymakers, you better pay attention. Well, the once fringe theory in question is called Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT for short. As defined by online investing dictionary Investopedia, MMT is a heterodox macroeconomic framework that says monetarily sovereign countries like the U.S., U.K., Japan, and Canada, which spend, tax, and borrow in a fiat currency they fully control, are not operationally constrained by revenues when it comes to federal government spending. In other words, deficits no longer matter because financially powerful developed countries can create, i.e. print, enough money to cover expenditures and can continuously refinance the debt in their own currency. Well, why would they want to do that? The theory is that massive government spending helps the economy grow to its full potential, including full employment, and also finance major programs like universal health care, free college tuition, and green energy initiatives. Sound familiar? Well, here's how a form of MMT is currently being put into practice. According to a recent report from top-rated Wall Street economist Ed Hyman, in just one year, we'll have $5.1 trillion in fiscal stimulus. That's $2.3 trillion last year, $900 billion in December, and $1.9 trillion here in March. That $5.1 trillion compares to $800 billion back in 2009. There could be another $2 trillion spread over 10 years. This is on top of unprecedented monetary stimulus, including QE and rates, and all of this is on top of reopening. Well, enter today's guest, Paul McCulley, who wrote an academic paper way back in 2013 titled Helicopter Money, or How I Stopped Worrying and Love Fiscal Monetary Cooperation. McCulley is currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown Business School, where he teaches a very timely multidisciplinary course combining law, economics, monetary policy, global finance, and behavioral finance. He made his reputation as a great investor and financial thought leader at bond giant PIMCO, where until 2010, he was senior partner, founding member of its investment policy committee, author of the influential monthly global central bank focus, and manager of its huge short-term trading desk, overseeing an estimated $400 billion in assets. I asked McCulley to explain how way back in 2013, long before COVID, he came to love the fiscal and monetary cooperation that we are seeing today in the form of helicopter money. Part of it is that I had just retired at the end of 2010 and I lived through uh, a dry run, if you will, of 
monetary and fiscal cooperation during the financial crisis. And then I retired and had the opportunity to start my own think tank. And I could uh, dive deep into this issue from an academic perspective. Uh, and it crystallized uh, that uh, the next time we had a recession, we would have to have fulsome, full-blown monetary and fiscal cooperation. Since it was 2013, and you were looking back at the, the response in the global financial crisis, are you of the view that, in fact, not enough was done as far as cooperation between the monetary authorities and the government, fiscal stimulus? Back in the last recovery, there's zero question that we did not have enough monetary and physical cooperation. Okay. And there I want to point the finger at the physical authority, not the monetary authority. I think that Ben Bernanke did an extraordinary job back during that period uh, without the help he needed from Congress, the physical authority. Uh, so zero criticism of what Ben did, which was marvelous back at that time, but he was facing the headwind literally the headwind of fiscal austerity, uh, which made it very difficult uh, to be successful. And ultimately, he was successful. But as you heard me say many, many times, the wealth and income inequality consequences of getting out of that hole using monetary policy predominantly actually were truly foul. You can get out of that type of hole with monetary policy only, but you will have just wicked uh, income and wealth inequality consequences. Uh, and hopefully uh, and blessedly, we will avoid that this time because the fiscal uh, authority has stepped up and has stepped up wonderfully. And the fiscal package is directed uh, to uh, Main Street and directed to those who have a high propensity to spend. Uh, so the cooperation we're getting now between the Fed and Congress is, quite frankly, exquisite. <laughs> Gee, what do you really feel about this? <laughs> so, so, Paul, is, is this modern monetary theory in action? Is that what we're seeing? No. It isn't. Okay. What we're seeing is fiscal and monetary cooperation, and it is appropriate, it's necessary, and it's needed, uh, but uh, it's not for all time. Uh, I believe in the separation of the Fed and Congress, or the separation of monetary policy and fiscal policy, I'm not a buyer of the notion that they should be collapsed for all times. Uh, and that's number one. And okay. number two is that if and when we do have an inflation problem, then we will need to have a greater weight put back on monetary policy because I don't think that Congress itself uh, has the will, and I don't think it should have the will, quite frankly, uh, to increase taxes in order to damp down inflation. So I'm a big believer in the separation of church and state or the separation of 
monetary policy and fiscal policy except in particular circumstances like we have right now. So right now it looks like modern monetary theory. Right. Um, and you could call it a romance with modern monetary theory, but I don't think it will be and I don't think it should be a marriage of the two authorities. I think they are distinctly separate. Uh, and I think ultimately only the Fed uh, has the political degrees of freedom to lean against uh, inflationary pressures. But when you're facing deflationary pressures, which has been the case with the pandemic, right. um, then you should have the physical authority or Congress uh, take the lead um, and the Fed to accommodate that. Uh, and where we are right now, the bottom line is it's Congress's job to spend fiscal red ink. Let me say that again. Spend fiscal red ink into reflationary monetary wine. The Fed gets <laughs> its grapes for free. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about $5 trillion worth of fiscal stimulus. And the most recent package is $1.9 trillion. So it's $5 trillion in the last year, you know, including $1.9 trillion. And other economists, your peers, are, are saying, look, the economy was recovering and is recovering. And if you look at, you know, numerous statistics, unemployment rate, which has, you know, come down very quickly from 14% last year, like to 6% now, that this is overkill. How, how do you respond to that? I don't think it's overkill. I think this economy is actually quite difficult to reflate, okay. uh, particularly in a deflationary world. Yeah. I don't worry about us overheating this economy with this fiscal package. I really don't. However, if I'm wrong and we do overheat the economy, I would consider that to be an absolutely delicious problem to have. <laughs> but that's why I come back to the notion you need to have an independent Fed so it's right. in that risk scenario that you do overheat to the point that you have uh, inflation that is too high, uh, then the Fed can lean against it using its political independence. I don't think that's a likely scenario anytime soon. Uh, but if it unfolds, we know how to deal with it. What we don't know how to deal with, uh, both economically and more importantly, as a democracy, is another long stretch of systematically underheating the economy. And overheating actually would be a solution in some respects uh, to the fact that we haven't had a inclusive democratic type of expansion over the last 10 years. Paul, you've been following secular trends for about 40 years, um, many years at PIMCO, for instance. And one of the things that, uh, that you've told me is that the response to the pandemic has fundamentally changed the way we think about the relationship between democracy and capitalism. 
So what was the relationship between democracy and capitalism pre-pandemic, and what is it becoming? Prior to the pandemic, we as a country had a love affair with capitalism. And there was nothing wrong with that because capitalism is the best system ever designed for the efficient allocation of resources through market signals. Mm -hmm. If you have a great idea, you can get rich. If you have a boneheaded idea, you can go broke. <laughs> Sometimes it's called the process of creative destruction going back to Schumpeter. So capitalism is very good, but it can't solve all things that we want and need as a society. So therefore, we need to have our government elected through the democratic process to do things for the good of the people that markets cannot, through the incentive system, do. So we're moving to a better balance, I think, between the invisible hand of the markets and the visible hand of the government According to the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial page, the Fed has become a de facto arm of the Treasury to finance deficits with unknown consequences. So has the Fed become a de facto arm of the Treasury? And doesn't that concern you because the Fed is supposed to be independent and not a political creature? There's zero question that we're having physical and monetary cooperation right now. Right. And the Fed, in fact, is buying $120 billion a month of treasuries and agency mortgage securities. So from a technical perspective, you could say, yep, they are a shadow arm as opposed to a de facto arm of the Treasury. Effectively, the Treasury and the Fed are working to a common mission, which is to reflate our economy from a deflationary hole. And that doesn't bother me at all, because central bank independence in a textbook sense is to prevent against an inflation problem. But if actually you have the opposite, a disinflation or deflationary problem, then it's eminently reasonable for the central bank to have a more cooperative stance uh, relative to the Treasury. So I don't look at this as a black and white situation which is why I am not a member of the MMT uh, crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, there are times when we should have full-blown cooperation. Now is one of those times which will look like MMT. But there are other times when we will need a robust independent central bank. Uh, right. When we have a clear and present inflationary danger. So an independent central bank 
is your ace in the hole against the black swan of an inflation problem. Paul, one of the things that, that you and I have talked about before and that, that you've actually said, um, that we're seeing a sea change in Fed policy, and this is what you said, the doctrine of preemption is dead. In other words, the Fed preemptively acting, tightening, you know, raising interest rates, tightening monetary conditions to preemptively prevent a rise in inflation, which is what a policy that we've seen, you know, for my entire professional career. You're saying that's dead. The Fed has been amazingly transparent with its new strategic framework, which was announced last August after a two-year deep dive review. And huge uh, compliments uh, to uh, Chair Powell and all of his senior leadership in doing the strategic review. And the grand conclusion of it was, number one, the doctrine of preemption is dead is dead. Right, preemption uh, to, to fight any sort of an uptick in inflation. Okay, right. so that's dead. And, yep. And the Fed has told us categorically they're going to stay at zero, effectively, for their policy rate until we have reached maximum employment. And you anticipate that to take several years. So you think- Several years, okay. exactly. And inflation could move up from, you know, a one-handle to a two-handle, maybe even a three-handle uh, between here and full maximum employment. And the Fed is not going to respond to it. Now, the bond market will, and we'll see long rates move up. But the Fed is committed to staying at zero until we achieve not forecast, but achieve maximum employment. And once that condition has been met and inflation is at least 2%, then we'll have liftoff from zero. So all the action will be in the long end of the yield curve, market determined. So the Fed has told us it is a regime shift, a paradigm shift. Um, and obviously Wall Street is been celebrating ever since last August uh, because uh, uh, Wall Street doesn't have to think in terms of we have to be preemptive uh, of higher rates because the Fed's going to be preemptive because the Fed's trying to uh, uh, get ahead of the inflation curve. The Fed wants to be behind the inflation curve. Uh, and if you want to put it in sort of religious terms, they want to atone for their sins of undershooting their inflation target for the last decade. Next question is the impact of the combination of the fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, but especially the new fiscal stimulus in the last year on the markets. You think that it is going to have a profound, is having a profound change on market leadership? Y yes, I do. And actually, What's the once, change? once we saw the, the fulsome, full-blown monetary fiscal cooperation of a year ago, it really was a year ago, 
last mm -hmm. March and it turned the market. Uh, the leadership uh, unambiguously was logically the growth sector and in particular the tech sector, otherwise known as the fangs. Because right. the economy was in effectively a, a, a temporary depression mm -hmm. and long-term interest rates came down to a half a point. Uh, and by definition, growth stocks are a whole lot more sensitive to long-term interest rates than value stocks. So right. off the bottom a year ago, by definition, the recovery on Wall Street was going to be led by growth stocks because there was no uh, economic activity uh, to uh, get your arms around because we were in lockdown. So the first six, nine months had to be uh, the growth sector. But once the economy started pulling out of the lockdown, and that wasn't just a policy issue, that was a whole mosaic of things, right. uh, then effectively the marketplace could start focusing in on economically sensitive stocks, value stocks, bank stocks. And so far this year, that focus has intensified because long rates have moved up, discounting that we're going to have effectively a boom in 21, 22, 23. And as long rates have moved up, it has been, as a result of expectations of a boom, it has been negative for valuation for growth stocks, but absolutely positive for valuation for value stocks. So this rotation from growth to value that's been unfolding so far this year, mm -hmm. turbocharged by the logical, rational back up in long-term interest rates has got real staying power. It doesn't mean that you don't want to have tech stocks in your portfolio. Of course you do. But from the standpoint of, of professional management of investment portfolios, whatever tilt you had last year towards growth was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But if you still have that tilt in place, you are not going to perform. You need to have the tilt to value economically sensitive and quite frankly, banks, uh, right. because banks should uh, benefit wonderfully from a market-driven backup in longer-term interest rates, with the Fed keeping the short-term interest rate pegged at zero for years. A steeper yield curve, uh, which is a natural consequence of where we are now, should be good for banks. So I think the portfolio that was right a year ago is not the right portfolio now. Paul, what would your recommendation be for our one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio in with this current economic scenario? I will come back to one that we've discussed before at various times mm -hmm. over the years, and that is emerging market equities, and particularly emerging market value. 
And I think it is uniquely positioned going forward because of this paradigm change that we've been talking about of a lot more fiscal policy leadership uh, and to the end of the doctrine of preemption. So it means that emerging markets don't have to worry about effectively being battered about the head and shoulders by preemptive Fed tightening. So the emerging markets have a lot more flexibility uh, to nurture, with a lag, of course, they always with a lag, to nurture long-lasting long economic expansion. So if you don't have some emerging market equity, in particular value in your portfolio, put some in. Paul McCulley, thank you so much for joining us on Wealth Track. It is indeed my pleasure, Consuela. Thank you for the opportunity, and we'll talk again soon. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is make sure you are invested in some beneficiaries of an accelerating economy. The laggards of the last decade are already coming to life. That means value stocks should outperform growth, small caps should outpace large companies, and international stocks, particularly in emerging markets, should lead domestic. If Macaulay's policy read is right, and it usually is, then the massive fiscal and monetary stimulus we are experiencing will continue for several years, which means the rotation in market leadership we have been witnessing since late 2020 has a long runway ahead of it. On the next Wealth Track, why accomplished global value investor Matthew McLennan has stocked up on gold in his first Eagle portfolios. In this week's extra feature, McCulley shares his post-pandemic plans. What's he going to do once vaccinated? Vaccinated or not, we ask all of you in our audience to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. We are delighted you took the time to join us. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.